Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta, your Dana Azband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Yuma, daf Kaf Gimel, page 23. Now, before we really delve in, I want to just mention, we we assured you that we would explain the thumb business, right? The When they are doing the count, right? Let's just recap. On yesterday's daf, the Kohanim wanted to do Trumat Adeshen, and at the beginning, they would just do Whoever, whoever got there first, and that was fine. And then as it became more people wanting to do it, it became a little bit of a danger because they would push and one guy broke his leg, and this was deemed an unacceptable way to get to do tremendous addition. So they took a lottery. And the way they took the lottery, and something in this procedure is not entirely clear, not to me nor to you, Yordain, I think, but somehow they would count, everybody would stick out their finger, and we talked about this in the context of not counting B'nai Israel. they would just count the finger instead. So the, the counting part I got, the, the problem is that you don't take off a finger and put it into a hat and then pull one out. So when they switch that to shards of pottery, I get that. That makes sense to me. But again, as they're counting the fingers, I'm not quite sure. But the concern about putting out one or versus two fingers versus a thumb is as follows. The Rambam explains that you, they, couldn't, they didn't put out the thumb. There was no such putting out of a thumb for a lottery in the temple because the way the thumb is so movable as compared to the rest of the fingers, there was greater possibility for somebody to manipulate, I guess, to manipulate his fingers and therefore have it appear like more than once as part of the count, in which case then he would be, you know, putting in his own name, so to speak, his own fingers for more than one chance at doing this treatment addition, which is fundamentally corrupting the system. So the thumb was not allowed for that reason. The one or two fingers, so I kind of just, surmised that it would be two fingers kind of the first two fingers kind of attached the Gemara here on our daf today says no only somebody who is sick meaning somebody who could not actually separate finger one from finger two meaning the index finger from the middle finger would only those people would be eligible to use two fingers at a time I don't know if they if they were arthritic again I'm surmising here but the again the concern is that if you otherwise might separate the fingers in such a way that it would look like you are putting in, you know, for your own name more than once. And again, corrupting the system, not acceptable. So the bottom line is, it's really just a way of keeping track of who is eligible to be doing whichever lottery it is, in this case, the traumatic addition. Um, and, and the reason that there are these very careful, detailed rules about it in terms of one finger and which finger and so on is simply to keep the system pristine to make sure that everybody's got an equal chance as they go in. Um, uh, I found yeah. this a little confusing. Like, in full disclosure, Anne actually had to sort of explain it to me. It still doesn't totally make sense to me how this works as a lottery, but... I don't I don't really understand how they then, like... I, I assume there's another step, right? Now that we've counted everybody off, I don't know. Like, I, I don't know. Do you put numbers down on somebody's fingertips and then say, okay, is, is that the one, you know, number 18 today? I, I don't know. I the How it worked as a selection process, I don't understand. But exactly. Okay. Now let's come back to our DAF. Meaning, first of all, we know we may come, we might come to an answer to this question, the selection process some other day. We don't have it yet. That's, this is where we're at. Um, but what I want to talk about today um and in full disclosure, I think your Dana, you would have also been very happy to talk about this today. So I will certainly give you opportunity to comment as well. Um, the Gemara here says, beginning with just the last couple of words on the previous daf, 
כל תלמיד חכם שאינו נוקם ונותר כנחש, אינו תלמיד חכם. We have a very, very strange sentence, a very strange statement, which is that anybody who's a Torah scholar who does not take a ven, uh, uh, who does not avenge himself, who does not bear a grudge, and the expression here is bear a grudge like a snake, like a serpent, is not a Talmud Chacham, is not a Torah scholar. And of course, this is a very striking and very difficult sentence because there's, there are psukim in Vayikra, Parakitet, Parashat Kedoshim, it says, don't, take vengeance, don't bear a grudge, lotikom velotitor, right? This is, it, it's kind of, you know, the ABCs of, of certainly the interpersonal conduct that is found in Sefer Vayikra, Parsha Kedoshim. So, of course, Sigmar is going to ask exactly this. Vahaktiv, lotikom velotitor, hahu bemamon hudiktiv. So the Gemara tries to resolve it and says, no, well, the, the verse in Vayikra is talking about property, that if somebody is going to you know, was was not nice or something. And lending to you, you should lend to them, that kind of thing, meaning anything pertaining to property. So the case here, and Rashi brings it on the Chumash, is... Basically, what's what's the difference between, you know, bearing a grudge? What is revenge? So the example for revenge is somebody says, lend me your tool today. And the guy says, no. And then the next day, the guy comes and says, oh, would you lend me your other tool? And it, and the revenge would be to say, well, because you didn't lend me yesterday, I'm not going to lend you today. And that is considered taking revenge. Now, it's a very mild form of taking revenge, certainly. But it, it shows that we're talking about motivation. And obviously, it can be a much more extreme uh, feud between people, for example. But the basic the basic issue here is that um, that the motivation is to get back at the person for not having done the comparable thing with you know previously. And then, what is bearing a grudge? So somebody's, so again, the same kind of case. The guy comes and says, lend me your tool. And the guy says, no. And then the next t- day, the other guy comes and says, you know, let me, let me borrow this tool. And instead of saying no, because you wouldn't, he says, you know, I'm not like you. You wouldn't lend to me, but I'm going to lend to you. And so on that kind of barrier grudge means it's not a genuine willingness to lend. Why not? It's a very specific, um, you know, um, I'm going to be better than you. It, it's putting yourself up for the sake of putting the other person down in the same context. Now, granted, you do end up lending the thing, and maybe it's not as bad because that good comes out of it, but it's still considered, certainly there's a pasuk, there's a biblical verse injunction against doing exactly this. So when the Gemara says that somebody who's a Talmud Chacham must avenge himself, uh, take vengeance like a snake, it's a really disturbing kind of thing, even though that seems to be a distinction. We're going to try to understand it between property and not property. So the Gemara says, but Sarah de Gufalo, when we're talking about vengeance, you know, does it not apply to issues of Sarah de Gufa, personal anguish, right? Meaning once you're in suffering, what difference does it make if it's a property or not property? Vatanya and the Alvin, we've got people, there's a Brita rather, 
where it says there are people who are insulted, but do not insult others. What do they do? They hear themselves being insulted. They do not answer back. They act out of love. They do things that mitzvot out of love, and they're happy in their suffering. Right, whatever this means that they're happy and they're suffering. There's a verse that is used to describe this kind of personality as well. They who love him, meaning him, meaning Hashem, are like the sun that goes forth in its strength. Right, meaning you could forget and forgive personal insult the same way you could forget and forgive a monetary uh, problem. Right, you don't have to hold a grudge just because the Gemara says that perhaps you could. It's again still hard to understand why this would be the behavior of the Talmud Chacham. So the Gemara says as follows: Leolam We're talking about the prohibition. The whole thing is really about the prohibition against you know keeping that kind of irritation, resentment, anger in your heart. And so, like, yeah, maybe he's not acting on it, but if he's if it's festering, that in itself is a problem. So the Gemara says, well, didn't Rava say, you know, regarding anybody who, you know, foregoes this kind of vengeance, right, keeping track, uh, keeping score, well, then doesn't, didn't Rava say that, that the heavenly court, that Shamayim will forego keeping track of that person's Pacadillos, whatever transgressions. And so the Gemara says, well, you know, that's a good reason that even somebody who's insulted should forgive insults, for example. Um, but, says the Gemara, that is only, and it's still really interesting to me how reluctant the Gemara is to say, oh, yes, that's a better way to be. It doesn't say that. It says, well, in that case, that would be the Mafaisole um, When somebody seeks to appease the person they've insulted, they try to make amends. Then the Talmud Chacham person should, you know, should forgive them or be willing to be appeased. But if there's no apology, then you should not forget it. You should not forgive. Rather, it's not about forgetting; it's about forgiving, because you're trying to. And this, I think, is telling commentary. You're you, the Talmud Chacham, who's not forgiving here, is trying to uphold the honor of the Torah. So, again, it seems to me that this may depend on what the insult is. If the insult is something that is, um an attack, so to speak, because that person is a Talmud Chacham, meaning it's about keeping Torah, it's about the mitzvot, then I understand the idea that standing on ceremony, to uphold the honor of the Torah makes sense to me. If it's really personal insult, like, I, I think we have to say that it's a better character trait to try to get over it. Well, I think the Gemara here is really dealing with sort of a very human emotion. Like, we understand why the Torah has that law, because it's very natural to want to have revenge or to hold a grudge. Um, but yet, I think Tamidei Chachamim somehow hold, you know, sort of a special place or when their honor is sort of, uh, let's say, crossed, you know, it almost is in a way not defending Torah to sort of just let it go. And so to me, that's kind of like what the tension is on this staff here. Okay, I think that's fair. I, I do. You hear what I'm saying, though, right? Yes, like this I absolutely can... hear what you're saying. Okay. <laughs> okay, take it away. Yeah, no, I hear what you're saying. I just think that that's a little bit what they're trying to tease out here. Sort of like what the normal human emotion is, right? People do want to take revenge, 
people normally and naturally do hold a grudge. But yet at the same time, there is a little bit here about sort of the primacy or the importance of the Talmud Chacham. And we do find these types of passages, you know, sort of where the Talmud Chacham is different than everybody else in society. Right, right. But this seems to be, you know, in the opposite direction from what we might think. Right? Don't we think that a Talmud Chacham should also be a tzaddik? And shouldn't a tzaddik also be longer suffering than this seems to suggest? Except that if the Talmud Chacham represents Torah, in a way, defending the Talmud Chacham is defending Torah. Right. But I think that's right. why they go through it, right? Like, in other words, because it doesn't really make sense. Maybe he should just be able to sort of, you know, uh, not get upset about something as one of those prices explains. Right. No, I understand this. The standing on ceremony for the sake of establishing and, and upholding the honor of the Torah, I do accept. It does make sense to me that sometimes you have to kind of go beyond even what your natural uh, preferences might be to forego something, to let it go, to not make waves, to whatever, like to be staunch in the support of the Torah. I get right. it. Right. And, and the last piece I would just say is, is that this is this particular thing of not taking revenge and not holding a grudge and Vayikra is interesting because it's a really a mitzvah of controlling your emotions, right? We don't have too many of them. We have a few of them, you know, maybe you could even put believing in God as, you know, a, you know, the first uh, mitzvah, the Sarah Hadibros, right? But the idea that sort of like you can control, right? So I guess that's a feeling that that gets put into action. So it's not saying that you can't feel hurt or upset, but don't put that into action by, taking revenge or holding a grudge. So I just want to point that out also. Um, yeah, I'm, that's good too. I'm, I'm going to move on uh, to, you know, this interesting discussion, you know, that we got into the whole thing with the, um, with the uh, Goral, with the lottery. I just want to point out one thing when I said that I didn't quite understand it. You know, you can look at the Rambam there who really does explain well that, you know, essentially the way it was done is that they would sort of pick a number and then a number larger than the number of Kohanim who were there. So if there were five Kohanim, I guess they would pick nine or something, an agreed upon number, then sort of count the fingers that way. And wherever it landed on nine, that's the person. But I still feel the description of it leaves a lot of holes. That's what I meant by that. Like, how do they get the number? Who's choosing the number? Like, all of that is not in the doc. And I'm just wondering if it was, like, so logical to everybody. And it's just not logical today. But I, I'm going to move on and we don't have to keep talking about the lottery. Um, so there's an interesting piece here about this story about these two Kohanim, right? Tanu Rabbanan, Masa Bishnei Kohanim. There was an incident with two Kohanim. They were both running and ascending the ramp. So one of them got into that fort, the magic fort, almost to say he's closer and, you know, the right would be his to do that avoda. Natal Sakin of the Truman Hadeshan. And the second one takes the knife and actually kills him, the second coin. Stands up on the ulam, right? And this is the this is what Herod built, okay? So, you know, on these steps, and he says, right, right? Oh, our brothers of the house of Israel, listen, and then he quotes the Pasuk from the halacha of Egla Rufa, right? So this is a halacha that appears in Devarim, in Perk Chafalaf, Psukim um, uh, Aleph through Bet, right? Which is essentially that if you find a dead body sort of between two cities and nobody knows who killed that person, there was a whole process where they sort of measured whichever, um, whichever city the body is actually closest to, 
that town would be responsible for bringing this cow. They would break its necks. That's what's called Egla Rufa, sort of as a way of atoning and a way of basically showing that, like, uh, mer- you know, human life is so valuable that this notion that you would just, like, find a body sort of just strewn in a field is just not something that we can live with. It's, it's an evil in society, and therefore it needs to be, it needs to be fixed. And so therefore he quotes this pasuk from Egla Rufa. Again, the Gemara goes on to explain it's interesting why he talks about Egla Rufa, right? Because this is not a case of Egla Rufa because we know who actually did the killing. But the Gemara explains later on it's because, you know, it's to this would would have gotten people more upset. It was it was to make people more emotional, you know, when this actually happened. Ana almila havi Egla Rufa, right? Is it upon us to bring an Egla Rufa? Allah ir or Allah azarot? Does the responsibility fall on the city of Jerusalem or on the Kohanim, right? And you can imagine how dramatic this is, right? The idea of Egla Rufa was it's two cities. Okay, so that's out like in the boondocks of the country. But the fact that here there was a murder in the Beit HaMikdash, and the question is, who's responsible for it? Is it the city of Jerusalem or is it the Kohanim who are actually responsible for it? Ga'u kola right? The whole nation burst out crying. Ba'aviv sheltinok. And then the father of the boy came. So it's interesting to know that this was two young Kohen, where the, the murdered boy was a young Kohen. From the initial description of the Brisa, Umatsu Farfer. And he found that he was writhing on the floor, meaning he wasn't actually dead yet. So he says, Look, you're the, he's your atonement, right? And then he says, My son, his son is still writhing. So the knife that was used actually isn't tummy because he's not actually a dead body yet. So this teaches you that in that generation, they regarded tum- the laws of Tuma and Tower of the vessels. They took that more seriously than that of murder. Right? And so they quote a pasuk, right? So they quote this pasuk describing Menasha uh, from, um, it's from Malachim Bet, uh, 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 Kings 2, chapter 21, verse 16, right? The Menashe was the king of Judah, was very, very wicked, and he did Avodah Zarah, but he really murdered uh, a lot of people. And he was during, uh, you know, he was in the, he was during the first Beit HaMikdash. So the idea is, is that, you know, uh, even during the second temple, right? This Rabbi Tzadok lived during the second temple, but the blood spilled the way that it spilled in the time of Menashe. And then I'm not going to read the rest of this, but, you know, the Gemara goes on then to have uh, an interesting discussion about, you know, which came first in terms of the Takana, the murder or the issue with the broken leg, you know, with the with the Takana. And they so they work get that out. Then they work out whether or not you would really do an Egla Rufa um, in Yerushalayim itself. Um, but it's the end here that's very interesting, right, where it talks about this Ba'aviv Sheltino, right? where he shows that, you know, he was, the, the knight didn't actually become Tameh. And so the Gemara went to say, Was it that they became less stringent about but they were they had the same attitude that they should have had of being careful about Tuman Tower and Kalim? Or right? Or is it that they had the right attitude about murder or did they become more strict about the Tuman Tara of Kalim? And so the Gemara 
you know, basically answers at the end. No, it was that they became loose about their attitude towards murder, um, but they were the same about their uh, things, uh, how they felt about um, the Kalim. And I think here the Gemara is presenting something interesting that when we have these types of perversion of halacha, there really can be uh, two causes of it. It's either that we're too, uh, we're not careful enough about an halacha or we're too careful about an halacha. And both of those are not good things to do. And I think that's something that they're trying to tease out or that something was clearly very wrong in this time period during the second Beit HaMikdash that, you know, you were willing to kill somebody in order to do the Savodah. And ultimately, you know, that's why they needed to, you know, this is why this Takana eventually exists. But I just like this point that the Gemara makes here that bad things happen either when we're too loose about a halacha or we're too machmer. Both of those are not good traits to have. Um, I think that this daf, like kol kulo, all of it, seems to hint, right, some places more explicitly and sometimes less at the underbelly of what, human nature, right? That that we're not always all we're cracked up to be. Absolutely. And I think, you know, we we certainly see many examples. You know, Chazal are very willing to share when the Kohanim don't behave. And this is one of those examples. Um, and, you know, I think, again, we've seen this tension throughout throughout the DAF. I mean, I think it's right. You've talked about this, I think, also the, his, the history of it, right? At a certain time in history, Chazal and the Kohanim were at odds because the Kohanim were actually, the Kahuna had been corrupted. And whether the Chazal had been corrupted or not, I guess it's a matter of debate, but they certainly didn't think so themselves. And they are the arbiters of our, of our Gemara. Uh, it was a messy time. Right. But I think here what's interesting is this is a different type of corruption. This is a corruption that comes from a, a twisting of halacha, as opposed to the corruption that comes from bribery or being rich or things like that. Right. Right. That's certainly true. Well, that's our top discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi Neat Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this stuff and some of its halacha and stories on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.